That's the sound of a day starting out right. I hear it every time my new Toro Z-Master 4000 Zero Turn starts up. With big-time horsepower, giant Voodoo track tires, TurboForce deck, and comforts like MyRide and USB ports, it's fully loaded to mow all day long while delivering that signature Toro cut. From start to finish, this beast means business. Get your Z-Master 4000 today. Toro. Count on it. Introducing the s Podcast channel, your one-stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard, episode 11. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm Jose, the Talking Beard Rivera. And Jose, it's finally here. The World Series as well. The NBA season has begun, and you know it's an exciting time for a lot of sports fans. Yeah, it's, that, you know, it's a little moment in sports all year round where you have all four major sports really going on at the same time. I believe on Thursday, a little nugget for you guys out there, it was only the 17th time in sports history that all four major sports were being played were being played on the same day so there was an nhl game an nba game of course we had an mlb playoff game and we had a thursday night football game too so for only the 17th time in the history of those four sports all of them have been played on the same day first of all that number is ridiculously low i thought it would have been more than that but it's also just one of those most exciting times of the year where there's just so much going on in the sports world yeah and Especially when you have moments where sports are just beginning, like the NBA and NHL. And so we're talking about how teams are beginning off their season. Whereas for the NFL, we're close to that midway point nearly. So a lot of teams where they're fighting for the division, and of course, for baseball, we're at the World Series. And that's where we're going to begin our episode 11 podcast with the World Series. And let's talk about those first, the two teams in there. Representing the National League, the Los Angeles Dodgers returning to the World Series after 29 years. The Dodgers beat the Cubs 4-1 to in the series. And one of the big keys for the Dodgers is they barely lost in the playoffs at this point as well. And for the Houston Astros, they won in seven games against the New York Yankees, winning four of those games at home and only the fifth team to win four games to advance at home to advance to the World Series. So certainly the Astros and Yankees series, definitely a lot uh, more interest involved with that series, especially since the fact that we're both from New York and live in New York. So a lot more conversation going on with the Yankees on that one. But for both teams, it was just winning at home throughout that entire ALCS. Yeah, again, as you said, that doesn't happen too often. I think the last time it happened was actually back in 2004 when it was the NLCS, when it was the Houston Astros, then in the National League, taking on the St. Louis Cardinals. And, you know, the Cardinals won four games in their park while Houston won their three in their park at the time. And Houston advanced to the World Series in 2004 and left the Astros being eliminated. But it's one of those things where it's cool to see that home field advantage really factoring into these games. Both places were rocking. But at the same time, it kind of leaves a little question mark for the Astros. Can they get it done on the road when you saw an L.A. Dodger team win games on the road? They did what they needed to do. The question is, 
Is that road struggle going to be a problem when it gets into the World Series? Can Houston be able to beat the Dodgers in L.A.? Or was it just, was it just because it was being played in New York and we both know how violent in a good way uh, and hostile the New York environment can be when you step inside a, uh, a New York ballpark? Certainly when teams are doing well in New York. Uh, right. A lot well, of times... both ways. Both of them are dangerous, even when they're doing bad. Uh, <laughs> some fans get very hostile. But, I mean, but in, yeah, when they're doing well, I mean, like, and it's like what Joe Girardi said the other day. And I think, and this is a good thing. I don't remember seeing Yankee Stadium that loud in a very, very long time. And we're talking about a team that they're always generating some kind of buzz. The Yankees have had their countless memorable moments, but it's been a very long time since you were actually watching a game and you could still feel the energy coming out of that ballpark. So give your tip your cap to Houston. They hung with them. You know, they played in a very hostile crowd. But again, it does worry me that they weren't able to win at least even one game on the road. And what's interesting to me is, uh, just on the tip of the tongue, on, on the fact of this, this is only the second time the Astros are going to the World Series. And for the Dodgers, they have not been to the World Series for 29 years since 1988. And that's something I think we're seeing a lot of late. You look at it and... Last year, representing the two World Series teams were the Cubs and Indians, and obviously the big storyline between the two is one at one team, the Cubs, hadn't won in over 100 years. The other team, the Indians, hadn't won over 60 years. The year before that, it was the Mets and the Royals, two teams that haven't won in 30 years between the two of them. So the last couple of years in the MLB, we're seeing a lot of teams that don't normally get to the World Series getting to the World Series, and it this is a moment where you got to almost say, this is a great time for baseball because of these factors. Yeah, it really is. I mean, especially when you look at a sport like the NBA, which we'll eventually get to, it's kind of being dominated by two teams right now. And when you look at baseball, there's such a parity in the league. You know, anybody can make it at any given time, and this is a good thing for sports. You know, sometimes when a team dominates a league, that's good too when you see dynasty teams form every now and then. But it's also good to have some, you know, random quirky teams making it out of nowhere as well, too. And again, you know, it goes to show you that implementing the wild card, the second wild card spot, has made it even better. Because how many teams have gotten into the playoffs via the second wild card and end up making it all the way to the end? You know, we've seen the Giants do it countless times as a wild card team. The Yankees were a wild card team this year. And, you know, that game went back and forth to Minnesota and they blew past Cleveland and almost won in seven games in this series as well, too. So, this, to me, the second wild card spot, adding more intrigue, putting more importance on winning the division, has definitely benefited baseball in general. And like you said, it's a good time to be a baseball fan right now. I feel like every year, you know, the slogan is always 30 teams, one dream. Well, you know, besides the rebuilding teams that we know won't be competing, you're looking at 25 teams, 20 to 25 teams actually having a legit chance. And that's all you can really ask for. And with that, Jose, what is one player on either one of the teams that you're really looking at at the moment that could be the, a defining player in the World Series? Well, I do you got to keep your eye on the Dodgers here? And I'm going to go with Rich Hill, actually. Um, we know what Clayton Kershaw is going to go out there and do. Clayton Kershaw, yes, it's his first World Series. I think he's put those postseason struggles behind him. I think this is a new Clayton Kershaw we're seeing. And again, I think the playoff, the playoff Clayton Kershaw before this is dead and gone. I think going back to that one start he had against the Mets in Game 4 of the NLDS in City Field, that is where Clayton Kershaw really turned things around for me, in my opinion. 
and Kershaw went out there. And he looks like the Clayton Kershaw that we see in the regular season every year. We know what we're going to get from him. We're going to get seven innings, very low scoring game. But to me, Rich Hill really is the guy to keep your eye on because the Dodgers' success, in my opinion, we know what they're going to do with their bats. Justin Turner is going to be clutch. You know, Chris Taylor, he's going to be clutch. We know what kind of runs the Dodgers can put up. But the question is, can Rich Hill back up Clayton Kershaw with another stellar outing? And to me, if Rich Hill does that, the Dodgers can get two games from Rich Hill that are as stellar as you know he can be because he can have those magical moments, then I think Rich Hill can play a huge factor going into this series for the Dodgers. For me, I'm, I'm going to take what I expect to be the AL MVP in Jose Altuve. And you look at Altuve, and his numbers this postseason have been nothing but phenomenal. But on the flip side, there are three games against the Yankees on the road, and he goes 0-4, 0-2, and 0-4 again. And they lose those three games. And in all the other games against at home, he's got hits, most of them multi-hit games, home runs in a few of them. He dominated the Boston Red Sox, especially in that first game against the Red Sox. And it almost looks like a lot of the Astros' offense is relying solely on what could be the AL and what should be the AL MVP. And that could be the big difference maker to me, almost to say, because if the Dodgers are able to find a way to keep Jose Altuve in check, which seems nearly impossible the way he has hit over the last few years... But if they can, I think the Dodgers are going to be able to take that series. But if Jose Altuve's been that dominant force that he's been this postseason, it could result in the Astros taking home the World Series. On another question on this, which player, more of a quiet name, obviously I used a very big name there, but a quiet name that we should be looking at on both teams. So you gave a Dodger player already, so why don't we start with an Astro player from you, Jose? Yeah, I'm going to go with Josh Reddick. Um, Josh Reddick, we all saw what happened in the ALCS. Only one hit, and it came in, what, Game 7? And Josh Reddick has really struggled against Yankee pitching. And again, you tip your cap to the Yankee pitchers. But Josh Reddick needs to, needs to be the Josh Reddick that the Houston Astros signed. And I think he will turn it around a little bit. But I think he's going to play a huge factor in this series as well, too. Considering that Clayton Kershaw is a lefty, Rich Hill is a lefty, you know, you Darvish could be the third starter in this series. So for Josh Reddick, it's going to be very important for him to get it going quickly, especially, again, after going, what, one for 20-something in the ALCS. He needs to get his back going. He's a big part of that Astro offense. Yes, they have Altuve. Yes, they have Correa. But, again, Reddick has been a big part of that offense, too, all season long. And, you know, again, that outfield was pretty quiet in the entire ALCS. They need to get Reddick going. And again, with two lefties on the mound, they're probably going to face in game one and game two where Kershaw and Rich Hill, Josh Reddick needs to get it going for the Astros. So I'm going to take an outfielder on the Dodgers side who's had a tremendous postseason so far in Yasiel Puig. And I think that's going to be one of those players that you're still seeing at more of the bottom of the lineup by the Los Angeles Dodgers. And that could be a big factor in this because if... Puig is able to perform for the bottom of the lineup in which he expects him to be heading at, and they're able to get production in those type of roles from that six, seven, eight hitters. Of course, the ninth will mostly be a pitcher in the games, but that's someone that I'm really looking at because you look at how he did against Arizona, 
couple multi-hit games against the Cubs, three multi-hit games, and if they're not going to be able to get that type of production again from Puig, they're going to have to look to go to somebody else, and a lot of times that's a little bit tougher to go to when you have a guy like Puig who's already a star-like player. Obviously, he's fallen off a couple of years, but the way he's hitting this postseason, he's going to have to continue that into the World Series in my mind as well, and What's another Dodger that could be a little bit of a quieted name on your side for you? To me, the Dodgers on the Dodgers side, uh, I'm looking at Austin Barnes, the catcher. I mean, really, that catching position has been a revolving door uh, for the Dodgers as well, too. And again, we don't know if Corey Seager is going to be fully healthy for the infield. Uh, Cody Bellinger, you know, he's kind of been stale over the past couple of weeks. Yes, he's gotten his hits in, but he hasn't played to the level that we know Bellinger's capable of. Again, you know what you're going to get out of Turner. You know what you're going to get out of Chris Taylor. And like you said, Puig is that spark plug in the bottom of the lineup. But then after Puig, who else is there in the bottom half of the lineup? Don't be surprised if Houston's not dumb. You know, don't be surprised if Houston starts to pitch around Puig because, there's no, because they know there's no other threat down there in the bottom of the lineup. So just keep your eye on Austin Barnes. I'll put slash Yasmani Grandal because really they carry three catchers. Any which way to decide, the Dodgers decide to go, the catching position must come through for the Dodgers as well too or really any other bat at the bottom of that lineup. But I'm focusing in on the catchers because, one, they haven't gotten much offensive production out of Barnes or Grandall. And again, yes, Puig is a spark plug at the bottom of the lineup, but you need someone to help back him up because the Astros start pitching around them. The Dodgers aren't going to have any firepower left. So I'm going to take a player on the Astros side that got completely destroyed in the ALCS that's going to need to bounce back in the World Series, and that could be that quiet factor, and that's Chris Davinsky. In the ALCS, just two-thirds of an inning in three different appearances he's gone, giving up four runs and four hits in that span, and even walking two batters. If they get that type of results from Davinsky, obviously it's going to result in many losses. But when you look at the factor, what he was able to do against Boston, he appeared in three of those games, all three of those being wins against the Boston Red Sox going three and two-thirds innings, having five strikeouts in that span. That's what has been Davinsky all season long for the Houston Astros, that middle-of-the-relief guy that can go an inning, maybe even two, if he's on fire, if he's got a low pitch count. That's what I'm almost looking for him, especially when you're talking about a team that's going to have to play multiple games in a National League park. And if you're going to have to switch to a pitching change, you don't want to use too many pinch hitters at that point. You don't want to use too many pitchers. You're going to want to go for consistency of almost a long outing relief pitcher. And Davinsky's going to be that guy for the Houston Astros when they have to go in Los Angeles to face in a National League park. So to me, I think he could be that quiet player that we see in the bullpen because Houston really didn't effectively use their bullpen too well in the ALCS and even in game seven it was two starting pitchers that threw for that nine inning shutout thinking only three hits allowed so I they're going to need to get relief production from their bullpen and Davinsky I think is the key to begin that way to get to the ninth inning and Jose this is an interesting one for me but I always like the idea of a storyline and I think there's a storyline that kind of defines each team when you get this far in towards a championship. And I just give you a couple examples. Uh, looking at last season, 
when the Cubs faced the Cleveland Indians, the storyline for the Cubs was as much as it is the, the curse and the 108 years versus the 60-plus years for the Indians, it was mainly young prospects, young top hitters for the Chicago Cubs. And for the Indians, it was top starting pitchers. And that was a big reason why those two teams were able to get to the World Series, why these two teams were able to have success to get through the playoffs. And so in that sense, is there a storyline that you look at that defines either the Dodgers or the Houston Astros? Yeah, definitely. When I look at the Dodgers, I think of two words, Andrew Friedman. And really, to me, that's the story. You know, we talk about how Theo Epstein is this legendary general manager. He broke the Red Sox curse. He broke the Cubs curse. And and rightfully so. Theo Epstein is the man. But when you look at Andrew Friedman, the VP of baseball ops for the L.A. Dodgers, I mean, this man's resume speaks for itself. You're talking about a guy that was in Tampa Bay, helped turn that team completely around, and, you know, helped them get to a World Series in 2008. Yes, they had Joe Madden, but it's really Andrew Friedman and the team that he built and the scouting department. If you don't believe me, they did that with a payroll of what? A bucket of peanuts, basically. He comes to L.A. He inherits this money-loaded team. And the Dodgers' payroll is still a lot of money, don't get me wrong. But he inherited guys like Hanley Ramirez, Carl Crawford, an insane amount of money that the L.A. Dodgers were just throwing away at Matt Kemp. And he literally cut it down. He got rid of a lot of the high-expensive guys. He bit the bullet on some of them. They're still paying Carl Crawford. But look at the team that he's created around him. We're talking about a team that's going to the World Series. And we're thinking about the L.A. Dodgers. You know, you think about firepower and big names. Justin Turner is their heart and soul of the team. I mean, a couple of years ago, Met fans were begging for the Mets to give Justin Turner a chance. Andrew Friedman gave him that chance. Andrew Friedman takes a chance on coding Bellinger. When Adrian Gonzalez goes down, they didn't waste any time. They didn't go sign a guy like James Loney. They didn't sign some other stopgap first baseman who's traveled from team to team. They called up their top prospect in Cody Bellinger and let him play every day. Chris Taylor was an unknown. I promise you no one knew who Chris Taylor was going into this season. And yet he's the everyday center fielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers, picking up Logan Forsythe, another guy that a lot of people don't even know about. You know, getting guys like Curtis Grandison just to make the pieces of the puzzle fit. I mean, they carried three catches for crying out loud. Again, picking up Grandal, picking up Austin Barnes. So really, and then the rotation itself too, Andrew Friedman is a mastermind, probably the second best VP slash GM in all of baseball behind Theo Epstein. But I think the storyline here is the mastermind, the mad sciences that's known as um, that's known as Andrew Friedman doing it again, even with a bigger payroll, still playing with that small ball mentality. And to me, his creation of this monster team that won over 100 games, but did it the Andrew Friedman style to me, that's the story for the Dodgers. Yeah, for for me it was the call ups. So like you said, Cody Bellinger, TJ Hernandez, Chad Taylor, and Chad Taylor phenomenal this season out of nowhere. It, that was I think the deciding factor for when you look at it for the Dodgers because you had this team that was doing well in the beginning and then all of a sudden they just pick it up. All of a sudden they're led by Cody Bellinger. And most teams would look at it and say, hey, let's hold on to our young prospects. Let's not call them up yet. Let's have the years on these guys because we might really not have a spot to put them in the lineup. But doing the exact opposite in that, putting them in the lineup, not caring about arbitration, not caring about those factors, and not worrying about 
how the lineup is going to look when certain players coming back because guys like Cody Ballinger played the entire season. And all of a sudden, you have Adrian Gonzalez, who's not really in the postseason, who wasn't effective in the regular season, who might not even be the first baseman for the team next year. So for me, I think when you look at the Dodgers, they had the right players already on the team, but they needed those extra call-up pieces, and that was the big factor. And we saw it in Chad Taylor getting co-MVP for the NLCS as well. So a lot of it for me for the Dodgers, it was their call-ups at the end of it all. Done a lot earlier on in the year than in when we know it as September call-ups. But that, I think, is the big storyline on why the Dodgers were even a more elevated team this season in those factors. Jose, what about the Houston Astros? Is a storyline or a type of word or two that defines the Astros in your mind? Yeah, I mean, if there's a word that describes the Astros, to me it's the the rebuild basically and perseverance. I mean, you're looking at a team that lost, what, over 100 games three years in a row? prior to the 2015 season, I believe. Um, you know, this is a team that won one. They, they lost 100 games. I think one year they even lost 111. And you're talking about a team that really had to trust the process, kind of like the Cubs, say, you know, bite the bullet and say, we're going to be bad for a couple of years. And they're basically honest with their fans. You know, it's going to be pretty ugly sometimes. We're going to lose 100 games. Uh, we're going to look terrible. We're going to look like there's nowhere to go from the bottom of the barrel. But give the scouting department a lot of credit. They hit on their draft picks, drafting George Springer, drafting Carlos Correa, drafting, you know, Bregman, you know, even drafting a guy like Mark Appel, who they ended up flipping, even though they overpaid, but they flipped him for a guy like Ken Giles, who's helping them right now. And really for the Astros, again, years of losing, getting to 2015 when they made the playoffs, still losing that year because of the tough way that they lost to the Royals in the first round of the playoffs. And then having a down year last year, a lot of teams would say, man, you know, we made the playoffs in 2015 and now we missed out in 2016. Are we headed backwards? Did we take a step, you know, did we step too far back? But no, they came right out in 2017 and established their dominance as one of the better teams in the American League, especially through that first half of the season before Cleveland picked it up out of nowhere. They were really considered the best team in baseball. So really perseverance and rebuild. Because again, you're talking about a team that had to completely tear themselves down to get to this point. And I bet winning game seven yesterday, just getting to the playoffs Getting to the World Series has to feel bittersweet for a lot of Astro fans and the Astros front office. And even a guy like Jose Altuve, who was there when the Astros were losing those 100-something games. Um, And really just persevering through all that and really trusting the process and realizing that sometimes if you want a better version of yourself, you really have to tear yourself down and start from the bottom. Yeah, for me, it's a lot of the same thing. The first thing that comes to mind, two words, rebuild, complete. At the end of the day, you said there there are teams like the Yankees that are a little bit more that don't have that bad times where they go on a stretch of losing a hundred games for five six straight seasons. They rebuild a lot faster. The Astros, it wasn't that case. They they had the long route of rebuilding, being that first pick in drafts multiple years, being that top five draft pick, really just a struggle in and of itself. And a lot of it, then they get sent to the American League. And they're still one of those bottom teams. And still having to try and rebuild. But going into this year, considered one of the best teams. Going into this year, considered one of the World Series favorites. Going into this year, 
having a Cy Young pitcher and then making the right moves as the year prolongs in picking up guys like Justin Verlander and showing that this team is fully going for it. This team has had its long years of struggles, and now that they finally have a great year under their belt, they are fully chasing. And they did exactly that. They have completed the rebuild. They are in the World Series, and they face the Los Angeles Dodgers, and a little bit of a difference between the two teams. The Dodgers more of a high payroll. The Astros not as much on a payroll scale as nearly of the Dodgers, but teams that where the Dodgers have been great over the last five, six years, and the Astros have not face off in the World Series this year. Always a fun moment, but what are you lo- most looking forward to in this World Series matchup? Well, what I'm most looking forward to is something that people are not really talking about. And sort of in a way, a lot of people, you know, they want to see Kershaw go up against Verlander in this series. But I think game one, and they haven't really announced the game one starters yet, but I think game one should be Clayton Kershaw versus Dallas Keigel. To me, that's what I'm keeping my eye on every time they face off against each other. Because you're talking about two of the best lefties in the game right now. And, you know, they're kind of almost like mirror image of themselves. Kershaw kind of like the veteran already, even though he's still young, he's in the prime of his career. But it's Kershaw's chase for that one thing that he's missing. We all know Clayton Kershaw is going to be a future Hall of Famer. He could retire today, and I'll gladly put him in the first ballot Hall of Fame for Clayton Kershaw. He has, what, two, three Cy Young Awards already? He's already established himself as one of the best left-handed pitchers of all time. But what's Clayton Kershaw missing? He's missing that ring. And I remember talking with a couple of friends saying, you know what, I don't know if it's going to happen this year, but eventually, I hope Kershaw does get a ring because I look at Clayton Kershaw and I say, I don't want to look at that guy and say, you know what? He's one of the best pitchers to never win a ring. That sentence to me sounds wrong. And I would love to see Clayton Kershaw's motivation going into this series. But the matchup I want to see is the pitching matchup between Clayton Kershaw and Dallas Keigel, two of the best lefties in the game right now. A younger Dallas Keigel going off against a veteran like Clayton Kershaw, even though they're not that much difference in ages. To me, that's the matchup I want to see between those two. And man, what a shutout that must might be if they face off against each other. I mean, you got to love the starting pitching matchups. Dallas Keitel, Clayton Kershaw, Yu Darvish, Justin Verlander. Whether they, whether it's Verlander game one or uh, Dallas Keitel game one, and the other one's going to have to face Yu Darvish, and we're talking about three of these four pitchers have Cy Young awards. Kershaw has multiple of them. Verlander has an MVP as well. And Yu Darvish, and it's not to take anything away from him, He's one of the top strikeout pitchers in all of baseball at the end of the day. So we're talking about four of the top pitchers in all of baseball, three of them with extremely impressive resumes holding Cy Young's, obviously the best one being Clayton Kershaw. So I I love the pitching matchups, but for me, I'm extremely excited to see how the Los Angeles Dodgers pitchers matchup against Jose Altuve. And I'm I'm very much excited for the Clayton Kershaw Jose Altuve matchup because the best darn pitcher in baseball versus possibly one of the best hitters in baseball and one of the hardest hitters to get out at the end of the day. So I'm extremely excited about that matchup in general between the Dodgers pitchers versus Jose Altuve. So that's the matchup I'm looking for. Well, Jose, the big moment, who do you have winning the World Series? 
Oh, I feared this question was coming for some time. No, I mean, this is one. Of, I mean, this is one of those questions where I really flip back and forth. I mean, it's rare when you're looking at a World Series where you truly are getting two teams that are the best in their respective league. I know Cleveland had the better record than Houston, but Houston also won 100 games. And I mean, I don't know if we can do a, like a fact check on this. I don't know how many times do we see a World Series between two teams that won over 100 games. I mean, Houston won over 100 games this year, and so did the Dodgers. So you're looking at a matchup where it really is a weird team that has a story lives in the world. We're looking at two juggernauts going at each other. You know, two two teams that are known for their offense, but they're also known for their pitching. Oh, and they also have pretty good bullpens as well, too. So this might be one of the better World Series that we've had in a long time. You know, it's two teams that we expected to be here at year's end. I know earlier in the year I said Astros. I know in the beginning of the podcast when we started the playoff predictions I said Astros. And I know I suck with the Astros all the way through, but I'm actually going to flip over and say Dodgers in six. Now, why do I say that? I mean, pitching-wise, I just think the Dodgers pitching rotation is a little bit better. You know, Keigel, Kershaw, Verlander, Rich Hill, or you Darvish. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to take anything away from Charlie Morton. He really stepped up yesterday. Lance McCullers really stepped up, even though if it was out of the bullpen. He pitched a beautiful game four before the Astros blew that game. Can they do it again? And can they do it again against a dynamic offense like the LA Dodgers? The question is, I don't know. I know what you Darvish can do. I know what Rich Hill can do. Clayton Kershaw, whoever else they put the pitching game for, I know what they can do. But the question is, what can they? What can these other guys do beyond Verlander and how much tank do those guys have after really being pushed to the limit in the ALCS? Because that matchup against the Yankees was very grueling. The Astros were tested in that series. I could have either, but that was one of the best ALCS matchups I've seen in a while between the Astros and the Yankees on the side note. But going back to the World Series, also, you know, the offense, you're looking at two of the better offenses in the league. I think the Dodgers are just a little bit better. But where I primarily focus is the bullpen. You said it yourself. Davinsky, what, pitched only like one game in the series? The question is, does A.J. Hinch trust his bullpen now that they moved on to the next level? I mean, you're talking about the past two games. We saw Verlander go seven innings in game six. Then they went to Brad Peacock, who was mostly a starter this year. I know he spent some time in the pen, but he's mostly been a starter. They threw him in the eighth inning, and they did Ken Giles in the ninth. Game seven, we saw Morton for five, McCullers for four. So they didn't even touch a bullpen reliever besides Ken Giles for two straight games. That, to me, tells me that A.J. Hinch didn't have a lot of confidence in his bullpen, rightfully so, because the Yankees ate the bullpen alive in that series. But how are those bullpen relievers feeling as they transition to the World Series? You look at the Dodgers, Kenley Jansen can throw two innings. Brendan Morrow, again, who came out of nowhere, went from being you know, everybody's top AAA pitcher that you send down at the end of spring training to a dynamic reliever that can give you two or three innings. Basically, it becomes the Andrew Miller of the playoffs this year with Brendan Morrow. And they have other pitchers in that that bullpen, too. Tony Watson, you know, Singrani. Uh, they have a lot of weapons in there in that bullpen for the Dodgers that I think are just more trusted than the Astros relievers. So, again, it wouldn't surprise me if this goes seven, but I'm going to say Dodgers in six. So, I don't know if this helps uh, your question that you had earlier about the 100-game matchup between the two teams. I wasn't, uh, the quickest thing I could find was an article, it's a little far back, but from 2012, and uh, some fun things 
on the 2012 article. It said since 2000, only 14 teams have won 100 games or more, and only one of those teams won the World Series. Two of them lost in the World Series. That was where so only three of the 14 in that span was able to get there. Uh, the Yankees, again, it could have happened from 13 to 16. Just saying, again, 2012 article. But the Yankees, 103 wins in 2009, won the World Series that season. They were the last American League team to do that since 1998 when the Yankees were able to do it. And then the National League team to do it uh, was the New York Mets back in 1986. That was the last one to do it. But I think the Cubs also won 100 games last season. So, of course, that would be a new stat in and of itself on that on an own factor, but of course, a hundred winning a hundred games and isn't always a guarantee to win the World Series. But in this year, it will be between the two teams who both won a hundred games. For me, I, I look at it and say, who has the the least amount of question marks? And to me, that's the Los Angeles Dodgers because when I look at Houston, and you look at the two series. The offense revolves mainly around Jose Altuve. The Astros are a great offense, but overall, they did struggle a lot when it came to the Yankees starting pitchers. And the Yankees starting pitchers consist of Sonny Gray, a pitcher that the Astros see a decent amount when he was on Oakland as well. So this is a guy that they should have been more used to. Cease is about the year. I get it. Postseason, a better pitcher. But overall... You still should be able to put better numbers on CeCe. They did hit well against him in that seventh game, but earlier in the postseason, he pitched extremely well. Luis Saravino has been the Yankees' ace, but then we're talking about who are they going to have to face in the Dodgers? Like you said, Rich Hill, who was incredible this year, won pitcher, NL Pitcher of the uh, the Month in July, Clayton Kershaw, the best pitcher in baseball. You Darvish, yes, they've seen him with the Texas Rangers, but also one of the top pitchers in all of baseball. The Dodgers have a better bullpen with Kaylin Jensen. They upgraded their bullpen during the middle of the year. They've got a better bullpen than the Astros, and you don't even know what the Astros will do with their bullpen question marks, as we saw in Game 7 when C.J. McCullers was throwing in as relief. So, there's a lot of question marks on Houston, and I think even one of the other question marks is the road. We saw the Astros lose three games to the New York Yankees in New York. One of them they should have won when the Yankees were able to come back and win. I think the Yankees were down four to nothing or four to one at that point and won six to four. That's a game the Astros should have won. They didn't. And part of that could have been because of the fact of dealing with a home, being on the road, going against a road uh, crowd, and just a lot of struggles on that factor. And you expect the Dodgers crowd to be just as loud, just as tough in that factor alone. And even against Boston, they lost a game on the road as well. They're 1-4 they're on the road. We saw the Yankees show road struggles this postseason. Yankees were undefeated at home. But on the road, they used, they were terrible. They were one and four going into game five, game six, sorry, and then they lost game six, and then they lost game seven. So we've seen a lot of road issues come this postseason. The Dodgers also undefeated at home. So if they fall behind two nothing, it's going to be a real tough challenge at that point. So I, 
I look at it and say both teams are great. It's going to be an extremely fun World Series, especially when you're talking about three Cy Young winners are going to be pitching in this World Series between these teams. And you Darvish is always considered going into a year a Cy Young favorite to win. So I love the matchups. But at the end of the day, I'm taking the Dodgers because I trust Dallas uh, Clayton Kershaw a lot more than a Dallas title. You Darvish could match up with Justin Verlander. I know the Astros don't lose when Verlander's on the mound, but when you go from there, the Dodgers have the better star in pitching. The Dodgers have the better bullpen. Both teams have a great lineup. But overall, I'm going to give it to the Dodgers at the end of the day. And this offense by the Dodgers is hitting a lot more. We saw them hit extremely well against the Chicago Cubs. Compared to how the Astros' offense was doing against the New York Yankees, it just puts me into a big belief that the Dodgers should be able to take this series and win the World Series. And, of course, they haven't got there since in 29 years since 1988. But, again, one thing to say, I'm, I'm looking forward to the World Series. I don't know how uh, you as you were well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, I think it's going to be an entertaining series. It could go seven. Who knows? Um, I know it's definitely not. I wouldn't expect it to be a sweep or anything like that, but we, uh, weirder things have happened. But I'd be highly surprised if this series doesn't go at least six games. I, I expect it to go six games. I think the Dodgers will take it in six games. Uh, is there a number that you have for it as well? Yeah, I, I said Dodgers in six. Dodgers. Again, wouldn't surprise me if it goes seven, but I think six is, is the number. And with that, that covers our MLB. And, Jose, I think we've been looking forward to this for a while, but we have not been able to speak much about the NBA, but the NBA season finally beginning, we got some NBA to talk about. I mean, did we did we intentionally skip over it because we know what's going to happen in the end? Do we have to pretend that, uh, <laughs> that all 28 teams or whatever have a chat? I don't know. <laughs> uh, certainly, we'll give our NBA Finals predictions at the end of our episode 11 podcast as well. But we'll talk a little bit about the NBA, and I want to begin with Gordon Hayward's injury. And Jose, for starters, terrible injury. Uh, injury that I was not looking forward to see on replay as many times and on video on my phone a few extra times. It, it's never too fun to see that, and you certainly hope that Gordon Hayward can recover from it. But Jose, first, what are your thoughts on the injury, and how much will this impact the Celtics? I mean, first of all, the injury is terrible, gruesome, and and really saddening, too. I mean, you look at a guy like Gordon Hayward, and he's one of the good guys. You know, he's one of the guys that you root for. I mean, you never want to see it happen to anybody, but especially a guy like Gordon Hayward, where, you know, this is a guy that keeps his name out of trouble, doesn't disrespect anybody, doesn't disrespect the game. And you were looking forward to a new chapter for him in a city like Boston where definitely the opportunity to win was there. You know, they have Kyrie Irving, and if Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward on the same team, you like your chances. And it's just it's saddening to see an opportunity now that's probably going to go to the wayside for him. He's probably going to miss the entire year. If you're Boston, you're not going to rush him back by any means necessary, even if you're in uh, a playoff chase, which they will be in. But you're not rushing him back to get him back, you know, in a couple months. You let him rest it out. You know, hopefully, you know, best of luck to him, best wishes to him. Hopefully he can have a speedy recovery so we can see him back on the NBA hardwood. 
Um, and again, that leaves it at that for the injury. But in terms of how it affects the Celtics, this is a huge blow for Boston right out the gate. And it couldn't happen at worst timing. First game of the year against Cleveland, who you're probably going to have to have showdown with in the Eastern Conference Finals. And again, it's against the new-look Cleveland Cavaliers, too. And you're trying to flex your muscle as a new-look Celtics. And then this happens in the first day. I mean, this is a big blow. That's almost a punch to the stomach to the Boston Celtics. You know, you get Kyrie Irving. You sign Gordon Hayward. You're feeling good about your chances. Again, new-look team, brand-new feeling. And then, boom, your main guy goes down. One of your top two guys on your team goes down. And he's probably gone for the season. Now, because the East is so weak, I think Boston will do just fine in terms of the win column. But this definitely hurts the chances of the Celtics going down the line, which is their ultimate goal, which is to take down the Cavaliers at the end and make it to the finals. Again, it's still a little too early to talk about how this will hurt them later on down the road. But it does impact the Celtics a lot more, even if it's only the first game of the season. Yeah, this certainly you hope the best for Hayward. Hope he can recover quick. Uh, I, I mean, you expect him to miss the entire year at this point. And you're talking about he only was playing five minutes into the season. And I think this is even, it's an extremely tough blow to Celtics and the Celtic fans, who I think we're looking at this season, as you said, that they could possibly knock off the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James getting to the NBA Finals. Don't know what happens from there, but at least getting to the Finals would be the first goal in mind at that point. And now it, it doesn't seem like the Celtics are going to have much of a chance to beat a team like the Cleveland Cavaliers. And even still, as much of a chance to beat other teams in the Eastern Conference. So I think the Celtics are really a team that's sort as we are here to compete to win a championship. We're competing this year and we're competing years down the line. All of a sudden, it's going from that to, you know, this year we might be out of it already because of how good the Cavs are and because of how bad of a injury for Hayward this is. And the one thing that you hope from there is it doesn't result in a longer injury or a, an injury that could result in Hayward getting injured for multiple years after because of just a wear and tear in that factor. So it's certainly a scary moment, and you hope the best for Gordon Hayward. But this this is huge on the Boston Celtics and their season when you look at them being as the prime candidate to knock off the Cavs from getting to the NBA Finals. And speaking of injuries going around the NBA, and division rival for the Boston Celtics, well, can it really be a rival if they really haven't been competing <laughs> for years? I was uh, going to say, I think you're using the word rival a little too loosely yeah, on that a little, one. <laughs> a, little bit, a little nice on that factor. Uh, but the Brooklyn Nets will be, out, uh, will be without Jeremy Lin for this NBA season. And Jose, I know you're a Brooklyn Nets fan. So what's your take as a fan in seeing Jeremy Lin gone? Damn, well, first of all, thanks for burning me on that. You know, <laughs> no one needs to know I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan, man. I mean, come on, I'm trying to hide that. Um, it's not certainly in any of my profiles online, but anyways, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's a, it's a huge blow for Brooklyn as well too. Cause like we said, th- there's been a cosmic shift in the Eastern conference this year. A lot of guys went to the West. Paul George is no longer here. Carmelo Anthony is no longer in the East. A lot of teams got weaker, which means it really, I mean, really you can count on one hand 
how many good teams they are in the East. You're looking at the Cavaliers, the Celtics, and I still include the Raptors and, and Wizards because I think those four are really, you know, those are the top four, and then there's a giant, you know, gap in between the rest of the, the Eastern Conference. And what that, what, the, what that does when people shift over to the other side is that it creates more opportunities. And you look at the Brooklyn Nets, and you look at this team, and, you know, you, you look at a team that lost a bunch of games last year, couldn't even keep their first-round pick, or didn't get the overall pick, really, because they traded it to Boston in that dumb trade. But you look at this team going into this, before the Jeremy Lin injury, D'Angelo Russell, Jeremy Lin, Alan Crabb, DeMar Carroll, Really, it's it's they, they you know Karis Levert, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, Timothy Mozgov. These are not bad players. These are really good role players, and I always felt like the Brooklyn Nets they have a decent team if these guys can perform. But you're also asking too much out of these role players, if that makes sense. Like they really need that star to bring all these role players together. Brooklyn Nets don't have that. But I don't think it's crazy that before the year started to admit that the Brooklyn Nets could compete for what? The seventh seed? The eighth seed? Because honestly, how many other good teams are there in the East? I mean, you can count on one hand teams that will get the fifth, sixth, seventh seed, but I could see like the Knicks, the Nets, the 76ers, all competing for the eighth spot in the East. I don't think it's too unrealistic. Now you lose a guy like Jeremy Lin, a veteran, a primary ball handler for the Nets, a guy that can still play this game efficiently. That's also a huge blow for the Brooklyn Nets playoff chances because, again, you're left with a giant hole in the team. Jeremy Lin's a big part of the Brooklyn Nets. And again, the Nets aren't going to win the NBA title, but this does hurt them in terms of legitimacy and trying to at least push for that eighth spot. And also, it makes you question what's next for Jeremy Lin's career. Jeremy Lin only signed a two-year deal with the Brooklyn Nets. He was hurt for almost all of last year. He's going to miss all of this year. So what really is Jeremy Lin's future? I don't think we really know. Yeah, this... Well, Lin, I... I... Other than Lynn's sanity for what those ten days, that that was the highest point of his career. But at the end, he's still a decent player that can get the job done for a team, especially like Brooklyn. I, you know, I I did look at Brooklyn this year as I didn't see them as a playoff team. I, I think they're still very far off from that point. But this is a team that I thought could be finally in the right direction. And maybe they weren't going to fall as the worst team in the NBA this year, but maybe they'd be one of the top five worst teams and be more towards maybe winning a couple extra games this season. But it doesn't seem like that when you have Jeremy Lin already miss, missing the entire season. You already missed one of your core pieces that was going to be one of the more impactful players on your team. I still like to see how the Nets will do in a rebuild stage. I, obviously, it's a rebuild stage that's going to take, well, let's see, another 20 years or so at this point. But eventually, when they finally have a draft pick again, whenever that happens, if they don't trade that one away, it has to be one of the worst trades ever in, in the history of the NBA. It's, I don't want to talk about it. It's going to go down as one of the worst trades in NBA history. But besides that, yeah, at the end of the day, it's the Brooklyn Nets, and they're going to fall off as one of the bottom five teams, if not one of the bottom three. Of course, now with the NBA 
rule change that if you finish in the bottom three, you still have just as good of a chance as if you finished as the worst team percentage-wise for the number one pitch. In the same way, that's great news if you're, I think, the Cleveland Cavaliers, who I believe own the Brooklyn Nets pitch this year after Boston traded in the uh, Kyrie Irving deal. So a lot of opportunities for the Cavs to consider, considering they're going to even get better and better. But uh, the Nets are the Nets, and it's going to be years before we really look at them in any way of an actual team. But we just got to hope for the best, right? Um, Jose, speaking of like teams that aren't always considered the best, let's take a team from both one in the West and one in the East, that outside of these top five or six teams of the Warriors, Cavs, Spurs, Rockets, Thunders, Celtics, that could have a great season this year. So if you want to start in the West or East, you're tall, but where do you want to begin? I'll start with the East. And I think um, one choice to look at is the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, You're looking at a guy in Giannis Antetokounmpo who's going to be getting better every single year. And I, I tell you, there's no hesitation to this guy's career. He's already on the fast track to superstardom. He's already one of the better players in the NBA. But I look at Antetokounmpo, and I don't, I don't think it's too far-fetched to call him the next LeBron James, honestly. You know, LeBron James has been dominating this league for 15 years, maybe even more when it's all said and done. But you look at a guy like Antetokounmpo, he may not have the muscle, but he sure as hell has the size. And he has the ability to play every single position on the court. He could be a point guard. He could be a shooting guard. He can be a forward. Hey, I could even trust him to play center. Honestly, um, but I think the Bucks alone are an interesting team just because Tentacumpo is there. Now you add a guy like Malcolm Brogdon, who was the Rookie of the Year last year. Um, he's a tremendous point guard in my opinion. Uh, I think now that they have a, a legit point guard with Brogdon, it allows Tentacumpo to move back to playing forward or even at shooting guard, and it allows Tentacumpo to focus more on scoring points for them. Uh, I really like Brogdon, and again, you know the Bucks are an interesting team. They're young. They're hungry. They have some veterans and guys like Greg Monroe that can help them a little bit. Um, and really the key factor is, you know, they get Chris Middleton back this year, who was missing for almost all of last year with the injury. Jabari Parker's on the shelf, but he'll be back in about half a year. And you're looking at a team that, when healthy, the Bucks could challenge any of the top-tier teams, at least, in the East, like the Raptors, like the Wizards. Hey, even the Celtics now, especially with Gordon Hayward missing. Um, are they going to go win a title? Definitely not. But I definitely think you can see the Bucks up there. Uh, in terms of the top teams in the East. So I'll take the West on this one, and then the both of us will flip-flop. So I have the Denver Nuggets in the West. Uh, This is overall a really young team. You look at them, the front court of point guards, just a year, two, three years most of experience between all the players. They mix in that with a real veteran presence in Paul Millsap, and I've always appreciated Millsap's game as a guy that's, you know, he doesn't do too much except for his job. A guy that's almost average and pretty much a double-double on a consistent basis. Good defensive president at the power forward position. But really, for me, I'm I'm very much looking forward to Nikolaj Jokic, who's entering his third year in the NBA. And this is a guy that was consistently a double-double center through these first two games of this year, seven and a half assists he's averaging. And he also had a couple games last year of triple-double numbers, 
So that's a guy I'm really interested in watching. It's rare to see a big man really pass the ball as efficient as he does. And I think that could be even happening a bit more for the Denver Nuggets this year when you think of the young positions at point guard and shooting guard and a guy like Jokic could have the ball a lot more during a game could be looked at as a efficient scorer but at the end of the day he's also got the ability to pass it out to multiple players and I really like Denver the Denver Nuggets of course I'm not going to say they're going to finish as one of those top four teams in the Western Conference because the Western Conference is too stacked to assume they're going to be anywhere near those spots, but certainly I view the Denver Nuggets as a playoff team. They're probably, in my mind, more of a sit-seated team at if they if everything falls perfect for the Nuggets, and that's really a team I'm looking at that could surprise a lot of people by how well they do, and they could be a team you don't want to meet come the postseason in that first round because of how teams can strutter in Denver with the altitude. We see that a lot when it comes to football games. It's the same issues when it comes to basketball games as well. Just because it's indoors doesn't change too much. And again, a young team getting confidence, having success is always a great factor for when it comes to playoff situations. So I really look at Denver as a team. I'm interested to see how they do, and especially if they can get through this is a very tough Western Conference. And Jose, what would be your one team in the West? Well, for me, my one team in the West would be the Portland Trailblazers. Um, you're looking at a team that got, let's just let's just say, it, they got smacked in the first round last year um, by the Golden State Warriors. Uh, they finished at what, with a 500 record last year, I believe. Um, so you can even argue that the Trailblazers weren't even supposed to make it last year. But this is a team with Damian Lillard. Still one of the best point guards in the league, honestly, in my opinion. Doesn't get the credit he deserves. I love C.J. McCollum. To me, them at the one and two, probably the best point guard, shooting guard combo, again, in all of basketball. I'm not afraid to put that on paper. But when you look beyond those two, what do the Trailblazers really have? And you mentioned Nikola Jokic from the Nuggets. Well, I'm going to talk about a trade that they made with the Nuggets for Joseph Nurkic. Nurkic struggling extremely when he was on Nuggets, so it made him expendable. They ship him over to Portland in exchange for Mason Plumley, And what did the Trailblazers get? A dynamic center in the second half that wasn't able to play in the playoffs because of injuries. But boy, what a complete 360 he had in terms of a turnaround season last year once he got to the Trailblazers. I don't know if maybe playing alongside Jokic you know, made him self-conscious that he wasn't really the only center there or whatnot. But really, he came alive um, you know, when he got to the Trailblazers. I think this is a team that has a pretty deep bench. But I also like some of the draft picks that they made in this year's past draft as well. I love Caleb Swanigan that they drafted. And I think Jason Collins um, is a tremendous player, too, for the Trailblazers as well, too, to come off the bench. Again, they're not going to be challenging the Golden State Warriors for the Western Conference title or the Spurs anytime soon. But keep your eye on the Trailblazers because they were an 8 seed team last year that you can argue shouldn't have been in. It was just a matter of who sucks the least. But I think the Trailblazers can easily grab a seventh or eighth spot this year, or even a sixth one like the Nuggets, but at least grab it a little more firmly this year and say, hey, we're supposed to be in the playoffs. This is why we got this, as opposed to, hey, you know, we're, we're probably the only decent team left out of the, the losers club, so you might as well just take us in the eighth spot. Yeah, and for me, in the Eastern Conference, I'm going to take the same team as you, the Milwaukee Bucks. You said his name, so I'm just going to go with Giannis. 
<laughs> say, say it with me. Antetokounmpo. Antetokounmpo. That's better. That's getting better. better. He's getting there. <laughs> After years of butchering it, start, and starting to improve. But Giannis, as I'll stay safe, uh, you know, we're talking about it. I know it's three games, but 38 points per game, 9.7 rebounds. And he's also a guy that, for consistently the last couple of years, a couple assists each game, and, and against Portland, as the team you mentioned. Late block to keep the game close. Late steal to tie the game. And this all happened in the final minute. This guy dominates the court. And we saw how effective he was in the postseason. Where they didn't need much around him. All they needed was him at that point. And in the the NBA, you need a superstar. In the NBA, if you have a superstar, that's the difference maker. And you can win just in a regular basketball game, just on that one player. And Giannis is turning into that. He's become that. He is that. And at the end of the day, the Milwaukee Bucks are a true threat in the Eastern Conference. And you mentioned as well, they have a point guard now, but I'm really looking at Chris Middleton. He only played 29 games last season for the Bucks. This is, I think, the big piece that they're really going to need as well. Obviously, Jabari Parker, they're not going to have for a lot of the year. He can miss some serious time as well. But for me, it's Middleton. When you're talking about a team like the Milwaukee Bucks, who were trying to compete in the postseason last year, they fell out, they got eliminated. But now Middleton, if he can play for a full season, we could be looking at the Milwaukee Bucks as possibly the two-seed in the NBA Eastern Conference, especially when the Celtics don't have Gordon Hayward. The Toronto Raptors, I really view them as an equal stage with the Milwaukee Bucks, but at the end of the day, I give it to the star player. And Giannis is the bigger star player. Giannis is really that star player between those type of two teams. And so I really look at the Bucks. They could exceed a lot of expectations and jump all the way to a two-seed Three seed is about as low as I figured they'll go, but this could be definitely a great year for the Milwaukee Bucks and the NBA as well when you have a team that just also comes out of nowhere and starts dominating as well as they could. So I'm really interested in the Milwaukee Bucks. I think they could be a great team, and I don't know if they have enough pieces behind them to beat the Cleveland Cavaliers, but maybe if you're talking about a team that's dominating the two seed, and we even know that Cavs don't care about home court advantage, so they could even possibly take the um, the Eastern Conference one seed like the Celtics were able to do last year. And maybe from there, the Butts maybe look to make a move or two come the trade deadline and try and get another piece with Giannis. But again, that's a lot further on, but this is a team I'm looking at that could really dominate the Eastern Conference this season, and that could be possibly be, in my mind, an MVP-like player this year. Isaiah, what have you seen from the Thunder in their first few games with Russell Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony, and Paul George, three players that have normally just been the, especially when you look at last year, they were the star player and the only real player on their teams, dominating the ball, and now they're all on the same team. So, Jose, what have you seen from the Thunder? Well, really, I mean, it's only been two games so far into this season, so you can't base too much off of it. And they seem to be getting along just fine. 
the problem is though is that everything's fine when everything's you know peaches and rainbows and and butterflies flying around i want to see what happens when this team really goes through a tough stretch what happens when they lose five games in a row what happens when somebody goes down with an injury what happens when it goes and gets tough and someone calls for the ball but doesn't pass it you know i mean right now everything's just too perfect for oklahoma city and maybe it'll prove everybody wrong but you're talking about three players who love to have the ball in their hand especially in westbrook and carmelo anthony but you know maybe just maybe all of their desires to win a championship will put the selfishness aside a little bit and be able to share the basketball. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think the Thunder do have a lot of potential to be a threat in the Western Conference to teams like Houston and teams like San Antonio and maybe even a team like Golden State. I think I want their bench to get a little bit deeper if they can add a piece or two as the season goes along. But right now, everything seems fine. I think it's a cool. I think it's a cool mix of players. Uh, you know, to get a guy like Paul George, Melo. And Russell Westbrook, those are three guys that are no-nonsense guys, and they'll definitely work together. But I really can't say much about the Thunder until I see them go through some tough times because that's when you really see the true identity of a team. When things start getting bad, when things hit a little bit of a rough patch, that's when you find out what a team is really made of. And, you know, it's only been two games, and the preseason has been pretty good for the Thunder, so we just haven't seen them hit that rough patch yet. You know, for me, I look at it and say, Russell Westbrook, obviously the true star and best player on the Thunder, and you look at the last, the game against the Utah Jazz, and he lost. Only six points, eleven shots, thirteen rebounds, nine assists, and seven turnovers. But when's the last time we've said Russell Westbrook only took eleven shots in a game? It, it, so I really like the fact that Westbrook is taking almost like an unselfish role the first couple games. Really, the the one stat that's going to kill the Thunder is turnovers because if Westbrook is still turning the ball over seven, six times a game each game with players like Paul George and Carmel Anthony on the court with him, that's a problem in and of itself. And that can't happen. And that's going to result in the Thunder losing extra games. And especially if that's happening in the playoffs, that could be the result in losing a series at that point. But overall, for the Thunder, I like that Westbrook is still dishing out the ball. He had nine assists in his last game, 16, I think he had in the first game of the season. That That's, to me, what I'm looking at. Because Westbrook is going to have to be the guy with the ball, and he's going to be a guy that wants to drive into the paint. And with that in mind, he's going to be able to kick it out to Carmel Anthony, to Paul George. And I get it, these guys all try and create their own shots. They all try and always have the ball at all times. And that's not going to be the case for these three. So I I expect the Thunder to lose a lot of games in the beginning of their season. It, it's easy to say that I, I don't expect the Thunder to be anything better than maybe a couple games over 500 for about the first month and a half. And then eventually it's all going to click. It's just going to take time playing in NBA games with each other to get themselves really affiliated with everybody. It's it's almost for the three of them like, in my mind, an all-star game. Yeah, you want to just pass it around. You want to have control for a little bit. You want to do your own thing. And we're still putting on something for the crowd. But eventually it's going to get kicked into deer. And like you said, it's going to take maybe a couple games of a losing streak to do so. I think it's just going to take more of, it's not about losing or winning, it's going to be more of just getting used to everybody. 
and what's going to happen late in a game? What's going to happen when it's two minutes left and who's going to take that final shot? Who's going to take those moments? Who are we going to look to for these plays? That's really what it's going to be when it comes to these three players. But right now, I, I like that we're seeing unselfish play by Westbrook. I like that we're seeing a little bit of unselfish play by the three of them. But they're certainly going to need to kick that up when it comes to it. Because if they get too passive, it's going to result in more losses than wins at that point. I want to stay with a Western Conference team. And I, I'll get a chance to talk about my favorite team. Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. Jose, are the Lakers a relevant team that we should be talking about them? Or are the Lakers getting a lot of attention to start this season because, let's face it, their franchise and a certain player and parent combo in Lonzo and LeVar Ball? Uh, I mean, a lot of it may have to do with Lonzo and LeVar. Here's the thing with the Lakers, and they're such a weird team. They do deserve attention. They do deserve to be talked about. But it really depends in what way. Now, if we're going to talk about the Lakers making the playoffs, I think that's foolish. I think that's dumb. I think it's a false concept created by a con man businessman in LeVar Ball who is trying to sell ugly sneakers for 500 bucks, trying to sell slippers for 200 bucks. Let me tell you something, Nick. Coming from a Hispanic background, those are weapons, okay? <laughs> slippers are weapons. They do not cost $200. You can get them for $0.99 cents downstairs in the deli. That's just not how it works. You don't do that, man. It's just it, it's, a, it's a Hispanic thing. But all, all, all jokes aside, I think the Lakers are an interesting team. You know, as much as I don't like LeVar Ball, Lonzo Ball is an interesting prospect. I mean, any way you slice it. The kid has a good head on his shoulders. I think he's going to be a terrific point guard. He's passing the ball, which is what I love right off the, right off the bat. He's not taking 20 shots a game. I mean, yes, he scored 20 points the other day. But he's not, you know, he's not foolishly just shooting the ball at his own at his own will, you know, trying to be the guy in the team. He's passing that ball because that's really what they should be using him for. He's a great passer. You can get it. The problem is with the Lakers is, you know, Lonzo's only step one, and we need to be talking about the Lakers in terms of their rebuild. And it's getting better. The pieces are coming along. You know, you have Lonzo Ball. You have a guy like Brandon Ingram. Um, I, I really like Kyle Kuzma, who I think was a sleeper in the first round of the draft for the Lakers. You know, you have a guy like Brooke Lopez who might be there for a little bit who can hold a spot at center and so the Lakers actually find a center in their rebuild process. I don't think the Lakers are actually that far away from contending again, which is why we should be talking about them. The problem is they're not there yet. Brandon Ingram needs to really step up his game. This is already year two for him. I'm going to give him one more year, honestly, to get his stuff together because by year three, you should be seeing a better Brendan Ingram on the court. I understand he's young, but hey, they drafted you for a reason in the first round. Time to get your stuff together and start playing like the Brendan Ingram that we expect you to. Um, I think Caldwell Pope, that was a huge signing for them. Once he gets on the court, the combination of him and Lonzo is going to be really good. So to me, yes, we, sh we, just, we should be talking about the Lakers. Just it depends on what reasons are you talking about them for. Are they a young and up-and-coming team? Definitely. Are they going to make the playoffs this year? Hell no. But by next year, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say, hey, let's check in on the Lakers and see what they're doing to put themselves in a position to possibly compete for that lower spot in the Western Conference. You know, LeVar Ball said something, and this is one of the few times I actually agree with LeVar Ball, and it's a scary moment to say that word, but... I don't know who you are anymore, Nick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but... He's like, and he had said, 
that you know nobody cares about the Phoenix Suns playing the Los Angeles Lakers. And they care about who Lonzo Ball is playing against the other point guard. And I actually agree with that. At the end of the day, that is correct. The Phoenix Suns are a terrible team. The Los Angeles Lakers are no better of a team. They're not going to compete in an in a Western Conference. Now, if this was an Eastern Conference, maybe we could talk about the Lakers as a possible run-in for a 7th or 8th seed. But this is the West. There's at least 12 teams ahead of the Lakers that are seriously better in all scales. And Lonzo Ball is not going to elevate this team to a playoff team in the Western Conference. But what we do care about in the NBA... We care about point guards. It is a point guard lead. It is a shooting lead. It all matters on those situations. The, some of the biggest stars in the NBA are mainly point guards. Why? Because point guards constantly have the basketball. So I completely agree with LeVar Ball on that sentence, that we care about Lonzo in that factor. We care about the fact that LeVar Ball... As much as he is the slipping, selling, con artist, he sells at the end of the day. He's entertaining at the end of the day. It's it, LeVar Ball is very like Donald Trump. And at the end of the day, there's an entertainment value to it. I'm not going to get into but it's just the same look and feel of the two. The, and... There's an entertainment level of it. That's why we see him so much on Fox Sports. That's why we see him so much on ESPN. That's why we see him so many times with Stephen A. Smith. There's an entertainment part to LeVar Ball, and with that comes Lonzo Ball. We should be talking about a lot more than LeVar Ball, but somehow it seems like it's more about LeVar. And when it comes to the Lakers, their franchise, as you said it, speaks for itself. Magic Johnson is going to be mostly running the team. It's part of their franchise as well. But at the end of the day, we care about the point guards. We care about how Lonzo Ball does because there are plenty of people out there on an entertainment value that are entertained by LeVar Ball. And there are plenty of people that can't stand LeVar Ball and hope Lonzo Ball does terrible and want to watch games of the Lakers just to see Lonzo Ball fail. And I think that's what is going to make the Lakers a relevant team because they are a franchise that matters and they have an entertainment value with them. And that's so they're not a relevant team in my mind, but they have all the masons of being a team that gets talked about a ton. Well, Jose, we gave our World Series predictions on who would win the World Series in our episode 11 podcast towards World Series beginning on Tuesday between the Dodgers and the Astros. And I know it's only a few games into the NBA season, but let's give our NBA Finals predictions as well. And do you want to take the first helm of it? Yeah, I mean, I'll start it off. And again, this is really... Uh, going to come to a surprise of a lot of people, you know, it's, it's after siphoning through a lot of the teams, you know, and, and really looking at each team's strength and weaknesses of all 32 NBA teams, you know, I, I stayed up all night mapping out the different scenarios in my head and concluded that we will end up with the 
Warriors and Cavaliers again in the NBA final. It took me weeks to, to figure it out, Nick, and I figured it out that um, that it's going to be Warriors and Cavaliers again. No, in all seriousness, I don't think um, a lot of teams got better. I think Houston definitely got better. OKC got better. Um, I think Boston got better, adding, adding Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward. I do like Toronto and Washington. I think they have upside. I think Milwaukee has upside. I just don't think we're ready yet to, to dethrone those two teams. Maybe next year, these other teams add a couple more pieces, or if they add a couple more role players and stuff like that, I think we can see a shift maybe and finally break up this finals. But I think for a fourth time, we're going to see um, Cavaliers and Warriors again, at least for one more year. And I think we're going to go back and forth again. I think they actually think the Cavaliers are going to win this year over the Warriors. Why? Because the Cavaliers did add some significant upgrades. Um, yes, they traded away Kyrie Irving, but you also go back Isaiah Thomas. You know, you got DeMar Carroll. Um, I'm sorry, not DeMar Carroll. Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, Jay Crowder. There you go. They got back Jay Crowder, who, by the way, is one of the only guys who could really successfully defend LeBron <laughs> in the league. And now he's on the same team as LeBron. But not only that, but they're also starting um, Crowder and LeBron at the same time, which adds some intrigue to that mix. And then they bring in Dwayne Wade, and we've seen what Dwayne Wade can do when he's still healthy. He may be getting up there in age, but there's no slowing down to him. And now he's besides LeBron again. I mean, just picture that starting five. Isaiah Thomas, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Jay Crowder, and whoever did decide to start at the center position, because Tristan Thompson most likely is going to come off the bench, so it'll probably be Kevin Love. And then when you look at the bench, Tristan Thompson, you know, you still have a guy in J.R. Smith who can shoot very well from the shooting guard position. And when healthy, when healthy, as your backup point guard, you have Derrick Rose. That, to me, is a scary combination of the two. I mean, that alone gives the Cavaliers the edge because of their bench. Because when healthy, you're adding an all-star MVP caliber point guard in Derrick Rose. And I just think the Cavaliers... You know, you have a team, you have two guys who've played together before for so many years, and LeBron and Wade, we've seen what they can do. And if you think Isaiah Thomas is not going to come back motivated after he comes back from his injury to prove to the Boston Celtics that they shouldn't have let him go, then you're crazy. But um, again, it might be close. It could very easily be Warriors over Cavaliers again, but I'm going to roll with the Cavaliers, especially with their recent additions. So the way I look at it is, you said a lot of it as, I have the same two teams. And shocker, I'm, yeah, I'm shocker. <laughs> it, it, it didn't take me as many weeks, uh, <laughs> maybe minutes, but uh, look at the end of the day, it, it's two teams it's the Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's obviously the Cleveland Cavaliers getting to the finals. Who else is in the Eastern Conference right now? Not much, and especially with Gordon Hayward's injury, nothing to believe can beat the Cleveland Cavaliers. Well, on a side note, on a side note, the Brooklyn Nets right now do have the same record as the Cleveland Cavaliers. Just throwing that out there, just saying. Moving on, and with that, uh, <laughs> take the, and then go to the Warriors in the Western Conference. Yes, the Western Conference is a lot better than the Eastern Conference. We all know that. They have better teams with the Warriors, the Rockets, the Spurs, the Thunder, and of course there are other teams like Memphis, like. The Clippers, I'm not saying the Lakers. And as well, it just keeps on going deeper and deeper. But at the end of the day, it's going to take me more than the start of this season to pick any other two teams to be in the NBA Finals. It's going to take months for me to say, hey, maybe the Thunder can win. Hey, maybe the Rockets can upset them. 
And even then, you still are going to probably have the same two teams come the postseason. And come that time when the playoffs begin, it's going to take probably when you get closer towards the Western Conference Final and the Eastern Conference Finals when you can believe somebody could possibly knock off the Warriors. Or there's a weakness between one of these teams. But for now, no, there's no reason why anybody should have anybody else but the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals. I get it, the Thunder looked a lot different, but you're going to need more than two games and more than just looking at this team on paper before you pit the Thunder to beat the Warriors. And you're going to have to need the same thing before you pit the Rockets to beat the Warriors. And that goes for every single team in this league. At the end of the day, there are 30 teams. Two of them have a chance to win the championship. Two of them are going to be in the championship. It's the same two teams that we've seen for the last, what, three years now? There's not going to be much change in it. The Cavs are the best team in the East by far. The Warriors are the best team in the West by far. And the two teams are going to face off. The only difference I have than you, Jose, is I have the Warriors in six games. The bench on the Cavs looked great. And I think that could be a deciding factor in that series when you finally sit LeBron James for about four minutes in the entire finals. But if LeBron James is able to get a little bit of rest during those finals, and he doesn't seem like he's totally gassed at that point, that could be the difference maker in the Warriors losing that finals to the Cleveland Cavaliers. But at the moment, I'm still going to stick with the Warriors. I'm still going to stick with the best team. And at the end of the day, it's mainly show me something to believe you can beat one of these two teams or show me something at least you can beat the Golden State Warriors before I pick you because that's how I look at the other 28 teams in the league they have not proven themselves to show me anything to believe they can beat the Golden State Warriors or the Cleveland Cavaliers and so overall though I think it's going to be an exciting NBA season I know everyone's just going to be looking forward to the postseason and looking forward to these two teams facing off. But I think we finally have seen over the last few years just teams are getting better. And I think that's so. I think expectations for the regular season this year is better felt than last year. What's your take on that part? Yeah, I mean, I, I could see why people are saying I think there's a lot of interesting teams to look at. There's a lot of young and up and coming teams. Like, I. I definitely want to, you know, tune in to see how the Lakers play. I want to see how the 76ers play this year, especially with the whole trust the process thing and with the guys they drafted, Ben Simmons' debut. You know, I want to see teams like Milwaukee out there. You know, I want to see the new look Thunder. I want to see the new look Rockets. I want to see how these teams stack up and stuff like that. So there's a lot of intrigue besides the finals in my mind. But again, yeah, it's so hard to look forward to, look forward to because of the fact that we know pretty much who's going to be there in the end. But there's a lot of players who I think are new to the league this year that look intriguing. And, you know, and you and again, you want to see how teams face off against each other. I think one thing that we can add to the excitement um, is the change in the All-Star game format, which I'm sure we'll talk about in future podcasts. And one thing we got to talk about in future podcasts is possibly realigning the playoff format instead of East and West to possibly going from 1 to 16 just in general. Well, we both can have that conversation in episode 12 of our podcast. We'll be recording that next week as well we always so with that I think there's a lot of a difference between the two teams if there is a 
little bit of a technical issue. That, uh, we apologize for that, for that last moment. But, uh, yeah, certainly I think when it comes towards the NBA season, uh, there's a lot more to look forward to this year than last season. And with that on episode 12, I think that should be a great conversation to have on should the NBA consider a different change in the postseason going to just the top 16 teams instead of the 8-on-8. Eight eight. But I think a lot of that could be a deciding factor in how well one conference does well above the other. I think that's really going to be a big factor on that to look at. But we'll cover that on our episode 12. But as always with every episode, we look back in beard back at the moment where we take a look back in sports history. And today we're looking back on October 22nd, and don't have much for it, but I got two fun ones. The Los Angeles Rams had set an NFL record by defeating the Baltimore Colts in 1950, 70-27. They really blew out the uh, Colts in that one. And in 2011, Albert Pools and the St. Louis Cardinals back when he was still a Cardinal became the third player to hit three home runs in a World Series game. And like I said, there wasn't many for our beard back on October 22nd, but always as well with beard back is our dude and dunce of the week. And for me, dude of the week has to be Justin Verlander. Two starts in the ALCS results in two wins for the Astros in which he throws 16 innings, 21 strikeouts, only allowing 10 hits, one run, just in, and two walks. He was simply pure dominant in his two starts, one being for nine innings, the other one being seven innings. Great performances, and the Astros pretty much have won every single game Justin Verlander has been on the mound for, as he has been a huge name for the Astros since they traded for him. And Certainly, he's going to have to be just as brilliant in the World Series if the Astros want to win the World Series. And Jose, always with Dude of the Week, is Dunce of the Week. So, who is your Dunce of the Week? Uh, we had, As always, we have a couple of good candidates for the week. Uh, but first, no one is more deserving than the Sir Alex Rodriguez himself. Former New York Yankee. No, I'm not a Yankee hater. I'm just honest. Alex Rodriguez has been a, I guess analyst at the desk throughout the playoffs on Fox Sports, on MLB, on Fox. And really, the dunce of the week goes to A-Rod because if you notice something, every time he is asked a question or is asked an opinion on something, he always inserts himself into the story. And as someone who wishes to be at a future desk one day, or has seen other players do it, such as Ron Darling, Keith Hernandez, Frank Thomas, or even watching all the Yankee players do it, like Al Leiter, Howard Reynolds, and MLB Network, most of those guys never insert themselves into the story quite like Alex Rodriguez does. Conceded much? I must say definitely so. So And what's funny for me is we have our Dunce of the Week as Alex Rodriguez, part of Fox Sports, and normally the the player I think fans hate the most of, or the person uh, fans hate the most from Fox Sports would be Joe Buck. And yeah, he gets a, he gets a pass this week, so you can thank Alex Rodriguez on that one. But yeah. Joe Buck, I can't promise your safety for next week. <laughs> it Just seems, saying. It, it always seems like no one is a fan of Joe Buck and how he calls a game. And 
Well, that's why I'm starting the campaign of bringing Matty V uh, to announce a World Series one day. I think Matt Vaskersian is a fantastic uh, baseball announcer. Yeah, him and him and John Smoltz have done a phenomenal job during the postseason. Uh, really? I mean, they go hand in hand. They're like peanut butter and jelly. I mean, Joe Buck and John Smoltz is like putting pineapple on pizza. Yeah, I, I went there. And, it's, it's bad. And on a final part, I mean, I, I think it would be great if the Dodgers could pay – Maybe get Vin Scully to uh, call an inning or something, or maybe a guest moment where he's able to show up in the uh, and announce an inning with either somebody in that sense because of just how many years he put in for the Dodgers and what, a year after he retires, the Dodgers are in the World Series. But certainly just a uh, fun thought on that factor alone when you think of announcers and people in the booth or people in the postgame. And with that, I want to just say thank you for listening to Sarasso and the Beard, Episode 11, the World Series, and with the NBA beginning. Once again, I am Nit Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And thank you for listening. Episode 12 will be recorded next week as you have been listening to Sarasso and the Beard, Episode 11.